calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com contagious. Dustin Gets Religion Dustin Clymer woke up on a cot. His shoulder hurt. His head felt like it was going to explode. A fever washed through his body, and every nerve throbbed with shooting pains. He rubbed his eyes and sat up. The infirmary tent, and he was the only one there. His training kicked in, and his hands found his weapon. The empty M4 carbine was leaning against a small metal cabinet of drawers at the side of his cot. Just having the M4 in his hands made Dustin relax a bit. The tent's soft plastic window showed darkness outside. He'd been attacked in the morning, so he'd been out for what? Eight hours? His clothes and shoes were folded up under a metal rack next to the bed. Something about his jacket bothered him. The shoulder patch. Images flashed through his mind. A little girl. A blonde, perfect, angelic little girl. Had he ever seen anything so gorgeous? He had. When he'd been out, he'd had visions of something black, something triangular. The hatchlings. Beautiful? Yes, beyond beautiful. Perfection. Utterly divine. Shame washed over him. He looked down at his jacket again at the shoulder patch depicting a lightning bolt hitting an upside-down roach. And even worse, the three small black triangular patches sewn beneath it. One of those patches was just black. One had a glossy white X embroidered on it. One had two Xs. Oh, sweet God. What had he done? He'd destroyed them. Three of them. Are you awake? His head snapped up. A voice, a little girl's voice, but he wasn't hearing it. It was in his head. He put his hands on his face and lay back down on the bed. He was a sinner. He had destroyed perfection, and now he would have to pay. Wake up, sleepyhead. I'm awake, he said. Your man tried to kill me, and now I understand why. I'm ready to pay the price. You don't have to pay a price, silly. You didn't know, and he wasn't trying to kill you. He sacrificed himself so that you were a hero, 
You killed the man who killed the other soldiers. He only shot you so no one would question why you were tired and wanted to sleep. He died so that you could see my pretty dollies. Do you see now? Do you understand? Yes, Dustin whispered. Yes, I see them. I killed them. That's okay. You didn't know, so it wasn't your fault. No, I didn't know. I didn't know how beautiful they were. You can make up for it. How? He sat up again. How can I? I'll do anything. You need to make others see, the voice said. You are the protector. You need to make them all see, especially your leader. Colonel Ogden? Yes. You need to give him smoochies and let him see the pretty dollies. More images flashed in Clymer's brain. Images of Chelsea watching her mother sleep. Images of Chelsea's tongue. You know what you need to do? Dustin nodded. Yes. Then hurry, but be careful. Don't get caught. You are a protector now. You and the others must join us because we want to open the gates to heaven. The tent curtain opened and two men came in. Doc Harper and Nurse Brad. Well, look who's up, Doc Harper said. You jabbing to yourself in here? The men walked over to the cot. Dustin shrugged. I guess so, Doc. Well, I'm not surprised, Doc Harper said. He slid a stool next to Dustin's bed and sat. Y'all probably a better conversationalist than Brad here. Ha, 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 Brad said. Keep it up, and I'll stop letting you win at chess. Doc Harper picked up Dustin's wrist and checked his watch. Brad, you couldn't beat me in chess if I played with my queen shoved up my rectum. Doc released Dustin's wrist, then pulled the penlight out of his breast pocket and started flicking it in Dustin's eye. Just stare straight ahead, Private, Doc Harper said. Everything looks okay. How's your head? It hurts a bit, Dustin said. Harper nodded as he switched to the other eye. Describe the pain on a scale of one to ten, Doc Harper said. Um, maybe a three? Doesn't sound like a major problem, Doc Harper said. Well, since you're alert, the colonel wants to see you ASAP. I'll let him know you're ready to talk. Brad, grab some Tylenol packets. Four should do the trick. Brad knelt down to open a drawer of the cabinet next to Dustin's cot. Dustin grabbed the back of Doc Harper's neck and headbutted him in the nose. Before Harper even slid off the stool, Dustin picked up his M4 with both hands. Brad turned his head to see what was happening, just in time to catch an M4 stock right in the mouth. He sagged to his left butt cheek, mouth bleeding, staring out with eyes that didn't really focus on anything. Dustin hit him again. Brad fell to his back, arm resting awkwardly against the open medicine drawer. Dustin looked down at the two men. Doc Harper blinked like mad. Tears poured from his eyes, and blood gushed from the bridge of his broken nose. He tried to back away, a reverse crab walk, but he couldn't seem to send enough strength to his feet. The heels of his shoes pushed weakly at the floor. Dustin pulled his zip ties from his pants pocket. Does that hurt, Doc? Dustin said. Let me kiss it and make it all better. Chelsea let her mind spread farther and farther. This was so cool. Better than all her best toys combined. 
She'd felt Dustin hit those men like she had been there, like she had hit them herself. She liked it. It was really fun. Every time she spread her mind, the feeling got stronger. The connections got stronger. Each host, each dolly, each converted person, they all felt a little different. Kind of like how vanilla ice cream tastes one way and chocolate another way. That was it. Each had its own taste. Dustin was a long ways away, but she could still connect with him. She could connect with Bernadette Smith, too, with each of the three dollies growing in her body. Those three tasted like anger, anger and fear. Sending Bernadette to the highway worked, but Chelsea had thought the soldiers would shoot the woman. Chelsea even had Bernadette kill her daughters and bring the knife. But the devils captured Bernadette, and that was bad. Bernadette's dollies were growing so fast. Maybe soon they would come out to play, come out to build. Chelsea sensed needles poking into them. So many needles. Just like the doctor had always stuck needles into her. Poking, prodding, testing. Dollies didn't feel pain like she did, though. The needles were really just kind of annoying to them. So why were they so scared and angry? None of the other dollies tasted like that. Chelsea concentrated on those three dollies, listened to their thoughts, and she found the answer. The son of a bitch. The boogeyman. They were staring right at the boogeyman. Of course they were angry. Of course they were afraid. Chelsea felt a stab of that same fear, a stab of that same anger. Chauncey had told her not to connect to the boogeyman, but that was before. She was stronger now. The dollies were so close to the boogeyman, maybe only a few feet away. She could connect through them and talk to him. The boogeyman made Chelsea afraid. That wasn't fair. Now it was his turn to be scared. Facing his past. Perry Dossie had never been claustrophobic. Then again, he'd never been crammed into a full bodysuit obviously not made for someone his size, then walked into a friggin' semi-trailer so jam-packed with stuff he had to turn sideways to walk through these pitiful excuses for aisles. But claustrophobia was the least of his concerns. The naked woman in the clear glass containment cell took up most of his attention. Her and what was on her. In her. Tight restraints held her wrists, ankles, and waist. She was crying. Perry felt shame wash over him. Shame at how he'd treated Fatty Patty. He'd screamed at Patty. He'd hit her. Cut her. He'd watched her die, hoping that in the process, he could learn something that might help him save himself. He hadn't even been a man then. Milner was right. Perry was a monster. The woman in the chamber pulled weakly against the leather straps. Those restraints tight? Do asked Margaret. Goddamn right they are, Margaret said. I put those on myself. Any tighter, and she'd lose circulation. Margaret's voice sounded colder than before. Colder and harder. As though maybe cutting off that woman's circulation wouldn't be the worst thing in the world after all. That wasn't the voice she'd used when she was helping him recover. Or sewing up the cuts Dew had given him. Then she sounded like she cared, like she really wanted to help. Now, 
Now she had a touch of disgust in her voice, maybe even a slight helping of hate. Please, the woman sobbed. Please, let me go. I swear I won't tell anyone. Try to relax, Bernadette, Margaret said. We want to help you. Liar, the woman screamed. You're the police. You want to cut me up. She couldn't move anything but her head, so move it she did, thrashing it around as if she were being electrocuted. Her sweaty brown hair flew in all directions. Her face carried an expression of wide-eyed terror one second, psychotic fury the next, then back again. The triangles stared out. With their black eyes, they could have been looking anywhere, but Perry knew they were looking right at him. Son of a bitch, you will die. Your death will be worse than the rest. Perry took a half-step back. That sensation of grayness remained, but whatever was jamming him, it didn't work this close to a triangle. He hadn't expected that. He'd hoped to come in, not hear a thing, then get the fuck out. Perry didn't realize he was shaking until he felt a hand on his shoulder. Take it easy, Perry, Dew said. They can't get to you. I gotta get out of here, Dew. I gotta get out. Dew's voice stayed low, low and calm. What you gotta do is focus. We need to talk to these things. We need the location of the next gate, and you're the only one who can get it. But, Dew... Listen to me, Dew said. Sometimes we have to do things we don't want to. You can't bring Bill back, but this is your chance to make it right. You have to take it. Dew was right. Dew had fought, had sacrificed. He wasn't asking Perry to do anything he wouldn't do himself. Can they hear me in there? Perry asked. Margaret nodded. There are speakers in the cell. The microphone in your earpiece picks up your voice. They can hear you just fine. Perry nodded inside the helmet. Now, he was grateful for the suit. Because if he pissed himself, no one would see. He cleared his throat. For some reason, he remembered the punchline to an old joke. It's sure not gonna suck itself. No more waiting. I'm supposed to talk to you, he said. Figure out what you want. We want to kill you. You are the destroyer. Full sentences. Punctuation. Soon, they would tear free from the woman's body. Where's the next gate? Nothing. You want to open the door. I know that. What's going to come through? Angels. Angels. Coming through the gate. Perry had never heard that from his own triangles and there was something profoundly disturbing about it. The angels are coming. People build for them, just like we do. We're going to make your life a living hell, and that's what you deserve, you cheating bastard. They seemed different, different from his own triangles, the ones he had called the Magnificent Seven, different from Fatty Patty's triangles and hatchlings. These three sounded feminine, but caustic, angry. Perry wondered what Bernadette Smith's personality had been like before the infections. Something told Perry there was one word for it. Bitch. What did they say? Dew asked. Hard to tell, Perry said. I think whatever's coming through wants to make us build things. Build things? Dew said. He spoke louder, as if that would help him be heard inside the containment cell. What are we going to build for you? You'll do what you're told. 
or you'll get the paddle. They're not going to say what it is, Perry said. I can tell. So much hate, derision coming off of them. I think they want to make us slaves. Oh, fuck that, Dew said. The jewels. Ask them where the jewels are. See if you get any vibes. Kill him. Get the gun. Kill, kill, kill. Perry stared at them, waiting to feel the rush of violent desire. But he didn't feel anything. He'd beaten them. Dew was right. He could do this. Where is the Jewel family? Perry said, his voice growing a little stronger with each word. Bobby Jewel, Candace Jewel, Chelsea Jewel. Where are they? Perry locked onto their jet black eyes. Nothing. And then he heard a voice. Not the triangles. Something new. Something cold. I think you should leave the Jewel family alone. A little girl's voice. Clear. Human. But in his head. You're scared, aren't you? You should be scared. You're scared too, Perry said. I can feel it. Dew nudged Perry's shoulder. What are they saying, kid? Kill that man. Nothing, Perry said. They're not saying anything. I can make you do it. I'm in charge. People have to do what I say. An intense rage swept through Perry. Oh, God. There it was. That heated lust to hurt. The hatchlings couldn't stir that up in him anymore, but this girl could, and far more powerfully than he'd ever felt before. Only this time, he felt it for Dew Phillips. Kill him. Kill him. I gotta get out of here, Dew, Perry said. I can't be in here. Kid, come on, Dew said. Don't chicken out now. We have to find the jewels, or at least see if the triangle whatever will negotiate or something. What's the matter, scaredy cat? Are you afraid? Perry shook his head. No. I gotta go. Margaret, whatever you're gonna do, you need to do it quick. They're gonna hatch soon. How do you know? Margaret said. They're using complete sentences. Perry said. Pauses. Like they're talking with punctuation. They didn't do that with me until near the end. You've got a day, maybe half a day, before they hatch. Kill him! Margaret looked at Bernadette, then back to Perry. You're sure about that? Perry, talk to them, Dew said. I feel your fear. I'm going to get you. Perry put his hands to his ears, a subconscious effort to block out the voices. His gloved hands hit his helmeted head before he remembered He couldn't actually hear the voices with his ears at all. Leave me alone! Okay, kid, Dew said. Just take it easy. Don't worry, Perry, Margaret said. We're going to operate on her right now. We'll get rid of them. Perry had to turn his whole body so he could look at Margaret. She seemed so small, a tiny face swimming inside that big helmet, like a guppy in a fishbowl. Was she really that naive? You know what? Perry said. I never thanked you for saving my life. He turned and opened the airlock door. The light changed from green to red. He walked out. Dew followed, shutting the door behind them both.
I want to take a second to tell you about a podcast I think you'll really like, Mayday. No one is prepared for disaster. No one knows exactly how they'll react in a plane crash, an earthquake, or when a lone gunman decides to open fire. On Mayday, you'll hear about the people who had to find out, people whose stories deserve to be heard. Join hosts Maya Nalani and Luke Welland as they tell you about extraordinary people who found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. Listen to Mayday wherever you get your podcasts. Margaret stared at the red light above the airlock door for a few seconds, irrationally worried that it wouldn't change from red back to green, that she wouldn't be able to open the door again, and that Bernadette might tear free from the trolley at any moment. When it finally turned back to green, Margaret realized she'd been holding her breath. Margo, are you okay? Clarence asked. Fine, she said. Man, Clarence said. That guy is so messed up. Yes, he is, Margaret said. It's got to be hard to see the triangles again. So disturbing to see them for anyone. I can't imagine what it's like for Perry. Despite that, aside from what he just had to endure, I think he's making progress. It was nice of him to finally thank me for saving him. That's not what he said. He said he never thanked you. I don't think he wanted to live. She started to correct Clarence, but stopped herself. Maybe he was right. Perry Dossie's life wasn't exactly a bed of roses. It doesn't matter because I did save him. She jerked her thumb toward Bernadette. And I'm going to save her, too. Now, please, help me prep this woman for surgery. If Perry's right, we don't have much time. We need to go back to the control room first, Clarence said. We need to talk to Murray. Why the hell do we need to talk to Murray? We need to get moving, hon. Every second counts. Please, Margaret, Clarence said. This is already complicated enough. We have to make sure the president is informed. Dr. Dan needs to suit up anyway. He can prep the patient while we tell Murray what's going on, okay? She didn't have time for this. But then again, keeping the wheels greased was part of the program. Gutierrez wanted to pretend he was in control? She could play that game, but only for so long. I'll talk to him, she said. But you've got 15 minutes. Then... I'm operating no matter what. We're going to need all hands for this. We might have to work as two separate teams simultaneously. Dan and Margaret on the heart, Kitch and I on the hip. Sure, Clarence said quietly. I'll get everyone ready. You get back to the control room, okay? Margaret nodded. She squeezed his gloved hand, then opened the airlock door and walked out. Perry, wait up! Dude tried to run after him. But the biohazard suit, combined with his aching hip and popping knees, made that practically impossible. Perry kept walking. Even though he had a limp of his own, his long strides quickly carried him into the darkness of the Jewel family's expansive property. Dew stopped and put his hands on his hips. He was too old for this crap. Perry, come on! Perry stopped and turned. Stay there for a second, Dew said. Better yet, come back here. Perry glared at Dew, then walked, big steps bringing him back just as fast as they'd taken him away. What was all that about? Dew asked. Those things are behind glass. They haven't even hatched yet. I know they're freaky, but come on. You have to be stronger than that. 
It's not them, Perry said. It's something else. What? I think Chelsea Jewell was talking to me, talking to me through the triangles. Dew longed for the days when he could hear something like that and say, you're fucking crazy. But Perry Dossie wasn't crazy. This was just another facet in his waking nightmare. What makes you think it was Chelsea? I'm taking a guess, Perry said. It was a little girl's voice. Chelsea and her family got out. She's a little girl. I'm making the connection. You're a regular Columbo, Dew said. Perry stared, then smiled a strange smile. That's more of a compliment than you can know. There was probably a story behind that, but now wasn't the time. So you had Chelsea Jewell in your head. Tell me why that scares you so bad. Perry leaned back a little and stared up at the black winter night. Power, Perry said. It wasn't like when the triangles talked to me. This is something different. I don't know, do. Not all these things have easy definitions, but she wanted... Never mind what she wanted. She's got power, do. Big time. Whatever she is, it's nothing I felt before. What about her parents? Did you get anything from them? Perry shook his head. No, just her. We need to find her. Deal with her. Before she gets stronger. We're working on that, kid. We've got an APB out on Clan Jewel. Every cop in ten states has their pictures. Now, come on. We have to get the gate location. We have no maps this time. It's Bernadette Smith or bust. Let's get back in the trailer and ask some more questions. I'm not going back in, Perry said. Don't be a pussy, Dew said. Perry's eyes widened, and the corners of his mouth turned up in a slight smile. He pointed a finger at Dew. Don't push me. Perry turned and walked into the darkness. Dew let him go. There was a time to lead, a time to follow, and a time to get the fuck out of the way. He'd seen that look on Perry's face once before, when the kid had been coming right at him, smiling, wide-eyed, naked and covered in blood, hopping on one foot, with his severed cock flopping in his clenched fist. Yep, definitely the time to get the fuck out of the way. The orbital couldn't understand it. It had given Chelsea very specific instructions. Chelsea, I told you not to talk to the Destroyer. I know you did. So she hadn't forgotten. She remembered the order, yet she had disobeyed anyway. If you knew it was forbidden, why did you do it? I don't know. The orbital tried to process the response. Tried and failed. What do you mean, you do not know? I don't know. Do not disobey me, Chelsea. You will bring the Destroyer if you talk to him. You must never, ever connect to him again. I already told you once, Chauncey. You're not the boss of me. The Orbital felt the connection end. Chelsea had broken it. The Orbital hadn't known that was possible. Clearly, it had to make additional changes. Now it would have to divert yet another part of its processing power to making sure Chelsea could not speak to the Destroyer again. 
She was already more powerful than projected, and that power would only increase as she connected to more and more converted. Murray and Vanessa, BFF. The President of the United States of America sat in his Oval Office chair, holding a glass of 60-year-old McAllen on the rocks. Vanessa Colburn sat in a chair near the desk. She didn't drink, Murray had heard, except, maybe, for the blood of her victims, or of random orphans, or maybe a kitten. The McAllen was an Inauguration Day gift from the Scottish ambassador. Cost was rumored to be upwards of $30,000 a bottle. He didn't exactly give the President of the United States a bottle of Chivas Regal as a present. That glass alone was probably worth more than Murray made in a week. He would have loved to let Gutierrez savor the scotch, but now wasn't a time for slow sipping. Mr. President, we need an answer, Murray said. Dr. Montoya wants to operate on Bernadette Smith immediately. So operate, Vanessa said. Ogden's men got you the live host you wanted, but Dossie won't talk to the triangles. Kind of shoots the whole plan right out of the sky. In one sentence, she managed to combine the success of her idea to send Ogden with the failure of Murray's team to capitalize on it. Okay, so it was actually a compound sentence, but that didn't change how effortlessly Vanessa Colburn could make you look like an idiot. Montoya can still dissect a triangle before it decomposes, Vanessa said. We're further ahead than we were before, even though Dossie failed to communicate. So what's the problem? The problem, Miss Colburn, is that for three months, we've also been trying to capture a live hatchling. Now we can achieve that objective. Vanessa stared at him. Achieve that objective? What the hell are you saying, Murray? That we should just let this woman die so we can capture a hatchling? It's an option that's on the table. It's an option if you're a fucking vampire, she said. She was calling him a vampire. Priceless. We need information. Wars aren't one with guns. They're one with intel. She shook her head. This isn't a war, Murray. He'd had just about all he could take from her. This woman had the president's ear? This woman was part of deciding the fate of the free world? Not a war, Murray said. What would you call it, then? It's a crisis situation, Vanessa snapped. No one in his right mind would call this a war. And what the fuck do you know about war, huh? With your fucking Ivy League education? You're going to tell me what war is? Take it easy, Murray, Gutierrez said. I don't think I will, Mr. President, Murray said. He could hear himself. He tried to stop himself, but he couldn't take it anymore. Tell me, Miss Colburn, in your infinite wisdom, do you know what it's like to have someone shoot at you? As a matter of fact, I do, she said. I earned my Ivy League education, earned it while growing up without any money, with drugs all around me, and crime all over the place. I saw my fair share of guns, Murray. I've seen friends die. Murray laughed at her. Oh, is that right? So you grew up in the hood, and that means you know what war is. After you saw someone die, did you run back to your house and turn on MTV? You don't know me, Vanessa said. You don't know how I grew up. Fine. Then educate me. How many people have you killed? She said nothing. None? Okay, I'll give you a free pass there. How many times have you held your friend's head while he bled out, looked into his eyes and promised him that you'd make sure his kids would grow up strong? None? Well, then you surely must have had to wipe your friend's brains off your fucking face, right? 
How many times have you hidden in a rice paddy as your blood seeps into filthy water? How many times have you had to kill a 12-year-old girl because she was shooting an AK at you, huh? Maybe the hood doesn't sound so tough now, does it? Murray! Gutierrez barked. Your service to this country is no small matter, but that is enough. Murray realized he was breathing hard and sweating. In 30 years of being in this room, in front of six presidents, he'd never snapped like that. This woman could push his buttons like no other. He pulled some Kleenex from his pocket and wiped the perspiration from his head. Vanessa didn't look upset at all. Her poker face was good, but it couldn't hide her main emotion. Satisfaction. She'd won. She'd exposed his mistakes. She'd made him lose his temper, big time. In her eyes, he saw a crystal clear message. If he was going to save any part of his career, he needed to cave in and back whatever she suggested. Murray cleared his throat. throat) I'm sorry, Mr. President. Gutierrez gave his best political smile. This is a rough situation. We're all a little short-tempered. Listen, Murray, Vanessa said. Believe me, I'm not some hippie who thinks you're a baby killer or something. I respect your service and your experience, but you're from a different time. This is the reason we came into office, because people like you think we can just forget someone's civil rights if it fits the moment. Murray's temper reignited, but he'd be damned if he'd lose it again. He locked his jaw shut. An uneasy silence filled the Oval Office. Gutierrez finally broke it. How controlled would this be, Murray? If we let them hatch, would anyone know? Vanessa's head snapped around in confusion. She started to speak, but Gutierrez held up a finger, cutting her off. How controlled, Murray? All Murray had to do was steer Gutierrez away from allowing the triangles to hatch. All he had to do was fall in line behind Vanessa, and she'd back off. But they still didn't know the location of the next gate. For that, they needed a hatchling. Dossie would come through. He had to come through. And besides, Murray fucking hated Vanessa Colburn. Well, sir, I'll be blunt, Murray said. The media already knows about the flesh-eating bacteria. If someone dies from that, he spread his hands. These things happen. Vanessa shook her head patronizingly. These things do not just happen. Vanessa, Gutierrez said, do me a favor and shut the fuck up. The look on her face might be the same one she'd have if Murray whipped out his cock and asked for a blowjob with whipped cream and ice cubes. On a scale of one to ten, Murray, Gutierrez said, how bad do we need to know what we're up against? One to ten. Try 432. We're facing some kind of invasion here. I think the time for tea and crumpets is long past. He looked hard at the president. Just two weeks in, was John Gutierrez already seeing beyond his idealism? Only one way to find out, and that was to force the issue. Murray pulled out his phone and held it up. Mr. President, please, I have to get your decision, or soon there won't be any point to this discussion. Saying nothing is the same as telling me to let them hatch. If you don't mind a little advice from an old man, sir, don't let indecision decide things for you. Make a call and live with it. Gutierrez stared off into nothingness, looking at something not inside the room. Let them hatch, he said. Murray typed let it ride into his cell phone 
with a thumb speed that would have drawn admiration from Betty Jewell in her texting prime. He hit send. Vanessa shook her head. She had the look of a person about to explain something obvious to a loved one who just doesn't get it. Mr. President, she said. John, I... We can't do this. Gutierrez laughed. Murray heard the anguish in that laugh. Vanessa, are you flinching? I never thought I'd see the day. I always knew that sooner or later, I'd have to send people to their deaths. Every now and then, I'd kid myself. Let myself hope that maybe my administration would be the lucky one. That a decision of mine wouldn't result in flag-draped caskets. Sending soldiers to die is difficult, but dying is part of a soldier's job. They understand that when they sign up. You know what's even harder to deal with? Realizing that there is an American woman named Bernadette Smith, age 28, mother of three, a Christian who volunteers at her church, and that I'm going to knowingly let her die in the most horrible way imaginable. Vanessa shook her head. Mr. President, I insist that... He pounded the desk with his right fist. You insist. You insist. Who is the fucking president here? You are, John, she said quietly. That's Mr. President, Gutierrez said. Vanessa looked down. You are, Mr. President. Do you know why I'm the president of the United States of America, Vanessa? She shook her head. One, because I'm smart enough to hire and listen to people like you. And two, because I'm smart enough to know when not to listen to people like you. The hardest decision is usually the necessary decision. And that decision has just been made. Now get out. Vanessa looked at Murray, then back at the president. Murray wondered if she was going to cry. She opened her mouth to speak, then closed it, then opened it again. You, you want us to leave? No, Gutierrez said. Just you. I need to talk to Murray. She did the double look again, first at Murray, who stood with a stone face, then at Gutierrez, who stared back, his face immobile. Vanessa Colburn stood and walked out of the Oval Office so fast she almost broke into a run. The door shut behind her. Silence hung in the air. What about Montoya's weather report? Gutierrez asked. Any luck finding this invisible satellite? Not yet, Murray said. But we've got a lot of resources focused on it, sir. We're trying to extrapolate possible locations. We're hopeful we can find something soon. Gutierrez nodded slowly. He'd asked about the satellite in almost a perfunctory manner. Murray calmly waited. He'd done this dance before. Am I doing the right thing? Gutierrez asked finally. His stone expression broke. Murray could see the pain, the indecisiveness on the man's face. Murray, tell me straight. You've been doing this a long time, right? Yes, Mr. President. Am I doing the right thing, letting that woman die? I don't decide right and wrong. You do, sir. I just give you the information to make decisions, then carry out those decisions. I see. And does that gigantic line of bullshit help you sleep at night? No, sir, Murray said. But a Xanax or two sure as hell does. Gutierrez sank back in his chair. He drained the glass of scotch, then set it down so hard that one of the ice cubes shot out and skidded across the desk. Murray walked to the drink cart, grabbed the bottle of Macallan, then poured the president a double. If it's any consolation, Mr. President, 
It makes me very proud and very hopeful that this decision is so hard for you. I've served five presidents before you. For some of them, I watched decisions like this become, become easy. Gutierrez stared at Murray for a second, then raised the glass in a salute. Thank you, Murray. Now go take care of this. Yes, Mr. President, Murray said, and walked out. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.